Good morning, church. <laughs> Today I'm going to continue in the series that I have been in. It's a series I'm calling Unzipping the Veil of Legalism, Seeing Through the Eyes of Grace. Now, you wouldn't know it here, but I have much to say about the political trajectory and condition of our country, but rarely do I do it from the pulpit. Having said that, we are nine days now in front of what we call the midterm elections, and these are some of the most important elections that this country has ever faced. What will you do on November 8th? What will be your contribution to our country or to your city or to your state? How will you demonstrate your duty to society? Will you simply just pray? Or will you have a corresponding action? Will you watch the election coverage from the comfort of your home? Or will you kind of grind your way through traffic to a polling station to cast your vote for the people that are going to be making decisions on behalf of this country for the next few years? Now, these are all very poignant questions, and I think we need biblical answers to these things. In the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, I want you to see what they say through the message paraphrase. Dear friends, do you think that you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half-starved, and you say to this good friend, good morning, friend, be clothed in Christ. That sounds super spiritual so far, doesn't it? You've called him friend. You've said, I want you to be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you walk away without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Was there any part of that you didn't get? Because I can go through it again if you want me to. I think it's pretty plain, isn't it? Sometimes we spiritualize things in a sense that we are looking for the vibe we are looking for the immediate excitement. Yet, a word is not put in our spirit that is so plain and so simple, so pragmatic, if you will, that we can walk away with this work on the inside of us, this change taking place on the inside of us, so that when we encounter situations like this, we have a faith response. Faith has a corresponding action. That doesn't mean that we can meet the need of every single person. But it has a corresponding action. Sometimes it's not even just about a financial need. It's about coming alongside that person and identifying with them. Coming alongside that person and being able to pray for them and to encourage them. Put a wind beneath their wings to lift them up in their stormy sky. Now, those scriptures that I just read 
if you're not careful, can put you in the limp trap of condemnation. <laughs> but it's not my heart. I want to put you in remembrance of what I said in a previous message. We are saved by the grace of God. We are saved by grace through faith, the scripture says. Therefore, what do we do? We exercise the same grace, the same faith that we were born again with. And what do we do? It's there to help ourselves. It's there to help others in need. It's there to help our country. And sometimes we don't think about our country. We don't think about our community. But the grace and faith that God has given us is so robust. It's so large. It transcends beyond the natural. It is a supernatural grace, a super abundant grace and faith. Grace is our response, not our requirement. That's what I said in a previous message. You say to me, well, wait a minute now. Can't God just do anything he wants by himself? Can't he do just anything he wants without you? The answer is actually no. I know that will shock your religious mind because you say God can do all things. That's right. But you see, there's a covenant between God and us. And he is the God who fulfills covenant. And in that covenant, he has made us co-laborers with Christ. Christ doesn't do it all. We are co-laborers with Christ. We do it together. If we make a mess on the landscape out there, God will not come along and clean it up. We need to clean it up. God has never come and picked trash up in my yard. God has never come along and mowed my grass, even if I just didn't have time to do that. We are co-laborers with Christ. Now, with these thoughts in mind, I want to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message I'm calling legalism, the running mate of ignorance. We know that an apple is the fruit of a tree, right? We don't think about it. You know, when you're biting into an apple, how many of you love a good old crisp, like honey crisp apple? Nice and cold. I mean, where it's got a pop to it. When we're biting into the apple, we don't typically start thinking about the tree, do we? No, we just think about the apple. We think about the enjoyment. We think about how well it tastes. But for every apple, there has to be a tree somewhere, right? You can't get apples without a tree. And when we think about legalism, we don't stop to think about where does it come from? Because most people, in fact, I've never met a person in my life that said, I'm legalistic. We're all easy to spot legalism when we see it, but nobody thinks they're legalistic. They just think, this is what I do to be in covenant with God. This is what I do to be in obedience with God. This is God's word but we never think about, I'm legalistic. When it comes to legalism, it has an origin. It comes from somewhere. And legalism, as I said a moment ago, is the fruit, or in this case here, it's the running mate of ignorance. Now, if we think about fear for a moment, fear is the fruit, or it's the running mate of unbelief. You say, I'm afraid. Well, why are you afraid? Well, I don't know. I'm afraid. I'm experiencing fear in so many different areas of my life. 
Where does fear come from? You have to ask that question. Where does fear come from? Because you can't deal with it unless you understand its origin. Fear comes from unbelief. Fear comes from not walking in the perfect love of God. The Bible says it's the love of God that casts out all fear. But the origin of fear is unbelief. We don't believe what God said. Over and over throughout the scriptures, he has said, fear not, little one. Fear not, for I am with you. Fear not, for I will never leave you or forsake you. And so we don't believe that. We have unbelief that's working in our heart, kind of like Valerie has been ministering about recently. And so the origin, the running mate, the fruit of fear is unbelief. When we think about failure, we have to ask ourselves, where does this failure come from? Well, we live in a fallen world. Failure is the running mate of or the fruit of condemnation. Condemnation is the deepest root that we can experience. We have a tendency to mow dandelions. We get behind our mower of failure and we keep mowing dandelions and they will never address the condemnation. The condemnation is the root system. And the moment you mow over dandelions, what do they do? They pop back up. You ever seen that? I mean, you mow them one day, they are a foot tall the next day. I don't know if there's a weed in the world that grows as fast as a dandelion. It's just amazing. And you want to go out and mow all over again just to get the dandelions down. It's an awful thing. But this is where it comes from. Now, we think about the mixture of covenants. Why we preach so much probably against that is because there's a fruit that comes when we mix the two covenants together. We take the old covenant, we take the new covenant, we mix them together. You know what you end up with? You end up with confusion. Confusion. It's the running mate of mixing. It's the fruit of mixing the old covenant with the new covenant. What I want us to see through the message this morning is how our belief system, how our actions and how our legalistic viewpoints can adversely affect an entire nation in very natural ways, okay? I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you are on the East Coast. You are staring the Atlantic Ocean in the face and you decide you're going to drive all the way to the West Coast to stare the Pacific Ocean in the face. How many of you know when you leave, you're going to have to stop for gas a few times along the way? Does that make sense? Nobody's got a gas tank. Get you all the way there, right? So you're going to have to stop for gas along the way. Now, imagine you're on this journey. And every time you stop at a convenience store, every time you stop at a gas station, you decide, you make it your ambition to find 10 people while you're there. And you walk up to those 10 people and you tell them eyeball to eyeball, you look in their eyes and you tell them you are ignorant. Now I'm telling you without equivocation, you will never make it from the East Coast to the West Coast, will you? You'll never make it. You know why? Because the word ignorant, as benign as it is, is very offensive because most people will interpret that word as you are stupid. But they're not the same word, friends. They're not the same. Friends, a dairy farmer would probably not do so well if you put him into a surgical room and he had to perform heart surgery. Would you agree with that? And I'll take the heart surgeon, get him out of the surgical room and bring him to the dairy farm. He probably wouldn't know the first thing about planting crops or milking cows, would he? Each of them would be ignorant 
to each other's profession, but neither of them are stupid. I heard it said many years ago, probably decades ago. I don't know who even said it to me, but they said this to me one time and it stuck. He said, we're all ignorant, just in different subjects. And I got it immediately. I knew exactly what he was talking about. I wouldn't know the first thing about flying an airplane. If I was with Fred and the rapture got him and not me. <laughs> Come on, Fred. I wouldn't know the first thing about flying an airplane. That doesn't mean I'm stupid. I'm just ignorant to the plane, right? Again, the message is called legalism, the running mate of ignorance. And when we think about the term running mate, our minds just naturally, they just automatically gravitate to the political landscape, don't they? When you think about running mate, it's the subordinate position of someone in a higher position. A presidential candidate has a running mate called a vice presidential candidate. He or she's the running mate. And so as I said a moment ago, we are just a handful of days in front of one of the most important midterm elections I have ever seen this country face, yet tens, multiplied tens of millions of evangelical Christians, they will not vote at all in the election. They're not registered to vote, many of them, and many are registered, but they just never vote. But would you like to know why they don't vote? Why would 60 or 70 million people, the majority of them born-again Christians, not vote? Well, one of the main reasons is because multiplied millions of believers have been introduced to and have been indoctrinated with what is known as a sovereign grace gospel. If the Apostle Paul were here right now, right here, and he listened to the sovereign grace gospel, he would lump the sovereign grace gospel into the same category as the Judaizer gospel, and he called that no gospel at all. So I'm not throwing my brothers and sisters under the bus. We just need to deal with some things. Why? Why would the Apostle Paul declare that a sovereign grace gospel is no gospel at all? Because the word gospel translates as good news, right? So if you take good news and you mix it with bad news, you don't still have good news. That would be like taking snow and mixing it with fire and trying to build a snowman. One destroys the other. It gets rid of the other, okay? You say, Pastor Mark, can you give me a couple examples of the bad news that is found in what you're calling the sovereign grace gospel? I didn't call it that. They call it that, okay? Can you give me a couple examples, a couple concrete examples of what would be so bad about this sovereign grace doctrine? Of course I can. Sovereign grace teaches that God does not offer salvation to everyone. Do you have a problem with that? I have a problem with that, okay? I don't have a problem with you. I just have a problem with the message. I will love you. I'll take you out to eat. I'll sit across from you. I have sat with atheists. I have sat with all faiths, basically. And I've had lunch with them or dinner with them or conversation with them. I have no problem with you. I just have a problem with your message, right? So sovereign grace teaches that God does not offer salvation to everyone. In other words, he's cherry picking. He's determined by whatever method that he's going to offer salvation to 
Maybe David, but not Judy. Maybe PJ, but not Mark Testerman. You see, that doesn't make any sense, does it? We know, we know his heart. His heart is, I've loved the whole world. And so it doesn't make any sense when you say that God is predetermining who will be saved and who will not be saved. In other words, he's not sending invitations to everyone. Jesus didn't die on an old rugged cross to have a, a selection process like that. We are not jurors that are going through a process to see if somehow we get through. No, it's, it doesn't work that way. And so that is the first problem I have with that doctrine is it simply does not offer salvation to everyone. Bad news, right? Sovereign grace clogs my lint filter when I think about it for a second. It just grates on me because there's so many people out there that are under condemnation. They're under guilt. They're under shame. And then somewhere along the line, they begin to question, did I really get saved? Maybe I won't know until I pass over. And they live the rest of their life in condemnation. And there are multiplied millions of people out there like that. I've encountered them over and over again. Sovereign grace also circulates the untruth that God is in control of all things. Now, Valerie has heard me say it many times. God is not out of control because if you end up with that doctrine, you basically arrive at the point, therefore, whatever happens is God's will. If your child dies early in life, then that's God's will. If your automobile breaks down and you're facing a repair bill that you can't pay, that's God's will. If the unrighteous find their way into political influence of some sort, it was God's will. If you get fired on the job, well, that must have been God's will. If you get divorced, it was God's will. If you get COVID and die, it was God's will. If your loved ones, if your loved ones never come to faith in Jesus Christ, well, that's because it was God's will. Friends, there would be no end to the nonsensical list that we could build, and it would make God responsible for all of that. I drive 90 minutes to get here every Sunday morning, and I see dead animals on the side of the road or in the road every time I drive, and I can't help but think, that must be God's will. Maybe he's thinning the herd out somehow. Isn't that dumb? You wouldn't think that way, would you? You wouldn't think that way. You know what? That animal just didn't look both ways. He just should have waited. And what was so beautiful about the other side? You ever heard that old saying, greener pastures? I look both ways, left and right, and I think the pastures are just as green where you came from. And so it's kind of a ridiculous thing if you think about it, right? But God is not responsible. He is not responsible for the chaos. We are responsible for those. The world that we live in is responsible for it. The enemy of our soul is responsible for it. But God is never, ever responsible for those moments. Many years ago, I heard the story 
a woman was telling, and I'm going to be honest with you, I applauded that story when I first heard it because I was so indoctrinated and so legalistic at the time. This was probably 15, 18, 20 years ago. A mother whose son grew up in the youth ministry and, was, and loved going to church and was very faithful. And he graduated high school and then he went off to college. And that boy's mother knew that there was a breakdown of higher education there and that these schools were typically very, very liberal. And she had this ideology, this mentality that was ingrained into her through the denomination that she was a part of that her son could somehow lose his salvation. And she thought he's going to mix and rub elbows with people that he's never met before. And I know our kids are challenged when they get off to college. I'll be the first one to agree with you on that. And so she said she was standing at the kitchen sink one day and she was praying to the Lord. And she said to the Lord, this prayer, she said, Lord, she said, if my son, when he goes on to college, if he would get away from you at college and ultimately backslide and lose his salvation, I pray that you would take his life now. And when I first heard that, I thought, wow, that is an amazing heart of a mother to pray. It was like a day or two later, she was notified by the police department, I'm sorry, but your son has been killed in a car accident. Friends, now listen, her prayer did not facilitate that. It would have happened regardless, okay? She should have been praying protection upon her son. She should have been praying favor upon her son. She should have been praying the blessing upon her son. But do you see what I'm talking about? Many of you have already experienced that before where you think people can get away from God. I'm telling you, you only get away from Him. You only become alienated in your mind. That is all. Not in your spirit, man. He cannot walk away from you. You cannot walk away from Him. You could call Him all the names in your vocabulary, and he would just stand there probably in heaven and go, son, are you done? Because I've been called those names many times. They really don't faze me. I love you with an everlasting love. I'm not going to walk away from you. So other things are responsible for the chaos and the darkness and the destruction, the issues of life that we face, but it's never God. Under sovereign grace, I don't have to take responsibility for checking my oil in my car because God is in control. Under sovereign grace, I don't have to be responsible to look both ways when I'm entering an intersection. You want to know why? Because God is in control. Under sovereign grace, I don't have to, hear, hear my heart now, I don't have to vote in the elections because God has already predetermined. God has already picked the people. God has put the political people in the places that he has designed them to be in. Under sovereign grace, I don't have to be responsible for taking care of my body. After all, the scriptures declare that God has numbered my days. So why would I want to fight against him? Why would I want to take supplements? Why would I want to be more healthy? I might live longer and God has already numbered my days. Friends, listen to me. 
Listen to me carefully. Numbering our days doesn't mean that God has predetermined, that God has foreordained how long he's going to allow us to live. God is outside of time. When he looks at your life or my life, it's linear. And he can number the days. He can see how many days we will live. God has numbered our days, but he's not controlling how many days we live. But so many people give up. They walk away from things because they think God is in control of everything. And it's simply not true. He is the alpha. He is the omega. He is the first. He is the last. He is the beginning. And he is the end. He has seen my life from the beginning all the way to the end. He has numbered my days. That's all it means. Now, did you know that I can tell you with accuracy, I mean with absolute accuracy, about something that's going to happen on Monday, April 8th of 2024. And there's nothing anybody can do to stop this from happening. The president can't veto it. The Supreme Court cannot unanimously vote it away. You say, what in the world is that? On Monday, April 8th of 2024, the United States is going to experience her next total solar eclipse. I guarantee that's going to happen. They can tell you with accuracy, it won't be a day late, it won't be a day early. In fact, they can tell you in advance, a hundred years or more, to the second, to the second, that's going to happen when you have the total eclipse of the sun. Now, let me ask you a question. When this total solar eclipse takes place on April 8th of 2024, am I the one that made it happen? After all, I numbered its days. I've just told you when it's going to happen. But did I cause it to happen? Did I make it happen? No, I didn't make it happen, did I? Now, in the same manner, numbering our days doesn't mean that God controlled how long each man will live. Our diets can determine how long we live. Our attitudes can determine how long we live. Your mouth can determine how long you live. There have been guys who said the wrong thing at the wrong time or the wrong thing at the right time and lost their life for what they've said. It can happen. I've seen it happen. The people we hang out with can determine how long we live. Our recklessness can determine how long we live. The choices we make can determine how long we live. Exercise can determine how long we live. Wisdom can determine how long we live. Do you know the scriptures say wisdom is supreme? And all you get, get wisdom, for she shall protect you. Condemnation can determine how long or how short a man's life is. You want to know how that happens? Because condemnation tears a man up. I've said it many times. It's like buying a brand new vehicle and then loading the brand new vehicle's trunk full of bricks. You will tear that suspension up in no time flat. Condemnation is like that. It's a weight that comes upon us. It's this oppression that overtakes us. And it will tear a man's mind up. And as the mind goes, the man will follow, as you know. And it will make us sick. 
That's why the message of the finished work of Jesus Christ is so important because it gets the bricks out of the trunk. It takes the condemnation off of you, the guilt, the shame, the fear, the dead animals all over the place. It gets rid of all of that nonsense. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that legalism, the running mate of ignorance, tries to put a God stamp on everything while forfeiting its own responsibility to, listen to me carefully, to occupy until he comes. Sovereign grace believers, what they do is they lump life and their beliefs, all of their beliefs into a single category and kind of like a total eclipse of the sun, there's nothing I can do to change it. That would become their attitude because God is in control. Legalism, the running mate of ignorance, you know what it does? It rubber stamps everything as God's will and never cleans the lint filter. It just says it's God's will. As a result, America and many other nations suffer needlessly. They are suffering when they should not be suffering. Friends, on November 8th of this year, we can take one of two positions. God is in control of the outcome of everything, or we can occupy till he comes. What am I saying? I'm saying that I believe we need to vote in our elections, and the church needs to hold the torch to light the way. We need to vote for righteousness. The scriptures tell us that when the righteous rule, the nation prospers, the nation rejoices, and when the wicked rule, the nation mourns. November 8th, midterm election day, should put us in remembrance that a short time ago, we surrendered $85 billion in some of the finest military equipment, and not only the military equipment, and not only the money, but the technology into the hands of our enemies. We need to remember the 13 servicemen and women that needlessly lost their lives due to the lack of a safe and orderly exit strategy from Afghanistan. You're looking at their faces right now. These are the men and women that laid their lives down for your country, but it was unnecessary. It should have never happened. And we need to remember these things, not because we want to be vengeful, but the scriptures say, when the wicked rule, the nation mourns, the nation suffers. We need to remember on election day, the 63 million babies whose lives were exterminated over the 49-year reign of Roe v. Wade. We need to remember that fentanyl is the number one killer of us sons and daughters. And the majority of these drugs are coming across an open border that many people don't seem to care about. We need to remember that violent crime in major cities is at an all-time high. We need to remember that our leadership has failed to find a solution for the homeless people of America. You can't let that population continue to grow. You can't allow that population to suffer needlessly. We need to remember that the defunding of our police, which has already taken place in many major cities across the states, does not make us safer, but rather exposes us to more harm and more heartache. We need to remember that our economy 
is experiencing an inflation that we haven't seen in 40 years. Gas and groceries, consumer goods, mortgage rates, all out of control. We need to remember that our schools are teaching children things that are an abomination to the Lord. We need to remember that our journalists and news outlets and social media platforms have censored and silenced our speech, and they want to continue to do that. We need to remember the politicians that possess a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. The scriptures tell us from such turn away. In other words, just because you mentioned God's name, just because you put an amen here and there, doesn't make you the righteousness of God in Christ. You pray for your politicians. You pray for your leaders. You pray that they come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, you occupy till he comes. You put the righteous people in place so that the nation will prosper, so that the nation will rejoice. I want to ask you a question. Is God controlling our every move? Is God controlling our every word? The truth of the matter is that believers are actually empowered by God, not controlled by Him. We're empowered by Him, not controlled by Him. The Scriptures tell us that it's in Him that we live and move and have our being. We are the salt of the earth, and we are the light of the world. Light always overpowers darkness. Darkness can never overcome the light. But if we continue to hide our light under a bushel basket, then how will we prosper? Not voting is one way we hide our light under a bushel basket. You see, God gave Adam. Adam's name means man. God gave man, in other words, dominion. He gave man power. He gave man authority when he put him in the Garden of Eden. And in front of a tree, Adam would make a decision that would strip him of his authority, strip him of his power. And then thousands of years later, the crucified one, the darling of heaven, Jesus Christ would come he would be our last Adam, not our second Adam, but our final Adam, the man Jesus Christ. And he too would give us our freedom back, give us our authority back, give us our power back on a tree. And so don't use the excuse, I have no power, I have no authority. You have more than you know you have. Jesus Christ the last Adam gave us our dominion and authority back on a tree, on an old rugged tree. Jesus, as he walked the earth, made a difference. You know what he was doing? He was occupying until the cross came. He was occupying until the moment came. What was he doing? He occupied himself with healing and miracles casting out devils, raising the dead. He occupied himself with teaching, and Jesus even paid his taxes. Do you remember that? So he didn't dishonor the government. He even paid his taxes when they came due. He said, Peter, go down and cast your net into the sea, and the first fish you catch, it's going to have a coin in its mouth. That will pay our taxes. Isn't that beautiful? 
that God would somehow orchestrate all of that to happen. How did that happen? By grace through faith. That's how it happened. Again, the sovereign grace doctrine prescribes two things. God determines which ones he has picked to save and that God is in control of all things, regardless of our cooperation. Friends, this unreasonable and baseless doctrine is what has kept millions of evangelical believers from voting. There are people that are stuck right now. They don't know what to do about this subject because the church has taught them a different way. I want to ask you a question. Why do the Calvinistic sovereign grace believers bother with evangelism? Why do they bother with missionary work if God has already predetermined who is going to be saved? Why bother? Why do they do that? Do they really systemically believe that across their entire life? I want you to imagine with me for a moment there's 250 sovereign grace believers on a jet plane going from the United States to Africa to evangelize, to do missionary work. And that plane courses its way out to the runway and it makes its wide swing and it stares down the runway. And all of a sudden, you hear the thrust. You hear the power. You hear the wind up and all of a sudden, bang! And everybody jumps and says, what in the world was that? And then the reassuring voice of your captain comes over the line and says, Ladies and gentlemen, there seems to be a little problem with the aircraft here. We'll get back to you in just a moment. And then after some evaluation, the captain comes back on the intercom and says, It seems to me like we've lost engine number four. But no worries, we've still got three of them left, and we can make it there with the three. So no need to worry. Everybody on that plane that believes in sovereign grace doctrine would say, let me off of this plane. Come on, now, I want you to be honest with me. If you're on that plane and you just experienced that, do you want to stay on that plane? Of course not. You'd have to be out of your mind. What if he came on the line and said, you know what, we're going to give you 50% off of your ticket today. Just stay, remain, just stay buckled up. We'll be lifting off here in a couple minutes. I would insist. I would throw a fit on that plane. I would say, you know why? Because that is using wisdom. There's no way those passengers would remain on the aircraft. Why not? After all, they believe in a sovereign grace gospel. If we go down while crossing the icy Atlantic, well, it must be God's will. Why would you fight against God's will? You see, it falls apart, doesn't it? It makes no sense at all. Every one of those passengers would insist that they were transported to another plane or that plane was replaced somehow. And so, with that thought, I want to appeal to my Calvinistic brothers and sisters about their sovereign grace and just encourage them, just insist that they search the scriptures to find and stare in the face the finished work of grace. It is the antidote to this nonsense of believing this way. 
And you know what you'll discover? In the process, you'll discover that legalism, the running mate of ignorance, veiled you from seeing your responsibility in life, including voting in elections. I'm told there's about 40 or 50 million evangelicals in the United States that refuse to vote. They just refuse to do it. Why? Because they believe God is in control. In Luke chapter 19, verses 12 through 24, we find these words. Jesus said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Who are we talking about here now? We're talking about Jesus, aren't we? He's the man of noble birth. And he went to a distant country. That's earth. That's us here to have himself appointed as king and then return to the father. And he called his 10 servants and delivered them 10 pounds. This is just currency in the day, okay? 10 pounds. And said to them, look at these words. Come on, occupy until I come. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy. Look at these words, underscore them in your heart. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. It's the little things that make a difference. Because you have been trustworthy in a very little matter. He said, take charge. Now that word charge right there, it comes from the Greek word excusia. It means the power. It means the authority. It means the ability. It means the privilege. It's the same word that was used in John chapter 1, verse 12, where it says, but unto them that received him, to them gave he the power, exousia, to become sons of God, even unto them which believe on his name. Power, authority, privilege. You get your privileges back, friends. Our privileges have been stripped away from us and they're continuing to get stripped away from them. But we've got the authority. We've got the power. We don't use swords. We use wisdom. We use the sword of the Lord. We use the word of God. That word charge right there literally means the capacity. God has put the capacity inside of us. It literally translates as freedom. God has given us the freedom. It means he has delegated influence. It means the right, he has given us the right, and he has given us the strength. All of that is found in that one Greek word, exclusia. And so Jesus said to that man who had been responsible, he said, take charge. All of that I just got through saying, take authority, take power, take dominion, delegated influence. It's all yours, the freedom that comes with it. And he said, of 10 cities. Do you notice he could have said anything? 
He could have said of 10 mansions in heaven. No, he says 10 cities. So he's showing them that it's the here and now on the planet we dwell in that I'm going to make you ruler. I'm going to make you in charge, give you authority over 10 cities. Now imagine if believers would just rise up and do what they're called to do, which is to occupy until he comes. And each time one did that and stepped out, we took 10 cities. Friends, we'd own the whole world. It would be like Monopoly. All the properties belong to us. Beautiful. Friends, voting may seem like a small matter to you, but Jesus said it's a big matter. You may even think, how can my vote make a difference? I I used to think that way. How can my little vote make a difference? The problem with that mentality is there's about 70 million other people that think the exact same way, and the majority of them are sovereign grace believers. Legalism, the running made of ignorance, has convinced them that there is no reason to inspect or to rehash or to go over again what they already believe to be true. We lose an engine once in a while, no big deal. We just change planes. This kind of reasoning is not occupying until he comes. Would you agree with that? It is not occupying until he comes. That's apathy, lethargy. It's not occupying until he comes. Next scriptures. The second guy came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge. There's that word again. You get the privilege. You get the authority. You get the delegated influence. You have the responsibility. You have the privilege of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. This is the piece of cloth right here, friends. You are the piece of cloth. You hide your influence on the inside of you. You hide the power and the ability and the delegated influence in the piece of cloth. You don't believe this is a piece of cloth? Just go lay your hands on a dead person one time. You'll realize that's just a piece of cloth right there. That's all it is. And then that man says, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. Now this guy, he's referring to is Jesus, right? He said, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. Now, the king that Jesus was talking about was himself, like I said earlier. But this man's viewpoint of the king is that he is a hard man. Is he right to think that way about Jesus? Well, absolutely not. The scriptures tell us that Jesus is gentle and lowly at heart. And he said, if you'll just come unto me, I will give you rest unto your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Therefore, this man's perspective is what's wrong. This man's perspective is what's hard. This man's perspective is inaccurate. Does it stand to reason then If we, that's you, that's me, that's us, that's we, right? If we are capable of getting one thing wrong, then we're capable of getting two things wrong. 
Is that right? Now, if we're capable of getting two things wrong, we're capable of getting four things wrong. If we're capable of getting four things wrong, then we're capable of getting eight things wrong. If we can get eight things wrong, we can get 16 things wrong. If we can get 16 things wrong, we can get 32 things wrong. If we can get 32 things wrong, we can get 64 things wrong. If we can get 64 things wrong, we can get 128 things wrong. If we can get 128 things wrong, we can get 256 things wrong. If we can get 256 things wrong, we can get 512 things wrong. If we can get 512 things wrong, we can get 1,024 things wrong. If we can get 1,024 things wrong, we can get 2,048 things wrong. If we can get 2,048 things wrong, we can get 4,096. If we can get 4,096 things wrong, we can get 8,192 things wrong. Did I wear you out? You didn't think I was ever going to stop, did you? Do you understand where I'm going with this thing though? We're capable of getting some things wrong. This man had it wrong when he said, you are a hard man. We get it wrong when we say that God has predetermined that this man will be saved, but not that man. We get it wrong when we say God is in control of all things, regardless of what we do. We get it wrong when we separate ourselves from the responsibility of occupying until he comes. Next scriptures. The man said, you take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. That's what he's telling Jesus. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, and that word means you perceived. That's what that word means. Not to know intimately, but it means you kind of guessed at this thing. You perceived, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Next scriptures. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Now, we're going to deal with this word occupy, okay? I want you to see it in the Greek. This word occupy comes from the Greek word pragmatuamai. It almost sounds Spanish, doesn't it? sound kind of cool. Pragmatuamai. It comes from the Greek word pragmatuamai. Look what it means. When Jesus said occupy until I come, pragmatuamai means to busy oneself with trade, to carry on the business of a banker or a trader, to be occupied in anything, to manage public affairs, get that one? Transact public business, exact tribute revenue and debts. This is what Jesus was getting at when he told the story about the king that had given gifts and then went away. And that's what God has done. He's given gifts. He's went away. Then they were left with the responsibilities. They were left with the power. They were left with the authority. They were left with the privilege of what? Of being involved in everyday affairs, whether personal or public, whether business or governmental, they were in charge. Next scripture. Pragmatuamai, the Greek word for occupy, is where we get our English word pragmatic, which literally means to deal with things sensibly and realistically in a way that is based on practical rather than theoretical 
considerations. In other words, don't complicate this thing, okay? Let's be practical. Pragmatic means literally to look at the practical outcome of something. But Jesus said, occupy till I come. The problem with non-voters is that they have been taught that voting is not spiritual. <laughs> That's not spiritual. But Jesus said, occupy till I come. Be involved in personal, public, business, and governmental affairs. Why? So that this whole world can be his. So that every man, every woman, every boy, every girl has opportunity to come to Christ. I think the reason he tarries, the reason he holds off, is because it's not his will that any man should perish. And we have this great responsibility and we've been endued with power from on high and privilege and delegated influence to be able to speak in his name and allow the Holy Spirit to work with us and work through us to bring people to Christ. I've seen it happen hundreds of times when I've been ministering on the streets. In the book of Acts, Luke, the physician who wrote the book, chronicles the event of the Apostle Paul as a prisoner aboard a ship sailing to Rome. We find that in Acts chapter 27, beginning at verse 9. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, men, remember he's a prisoner. He's got no right to speak to the crew of that ship. He's a prisoner. But what is he doing? He's using his delegated influence. He's using his privilege. He's using his power. He's using his authority in that moment. He said, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, look at these words, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unstable to winter in, the majority decided we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, <laughs> they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. They're piecing this ship together. They're securing it with their own efforts. Because they were afraid, they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. 
Look at these words. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Friends, we need to settle a truth in our hearts right now. God was not the one that created the tempestuous storm that Paul, along with 275 other prisoners and crew aboard the Alexandrian ship, faced. And God is not choreographing storms and chaos into our own lives to teach us lessons. I know that's a popular teaching that God is going to send a storm into your life. God is going to send this fierce thing upon you so that he can teach you a lesson. You wouldn't do that to your children and I wouldn't do that to mine. And God doesn't do that to us either. The loss of the ship could have been prevented had the owner and the captain and the centurion of the ship just simply listened to Paul. Likewise, listen to me carefully, the loss of our country and freedoms can be prevented if we listen to the heart of Jesus' words. He said, occupy till I come. Paul told the owner of the ship and the captain that he could see that their voyage was going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and to the cargo and even to their own lives. But the scriptures say they wouldn't listen. They saw the apostle Paul as some sort of colicky baby and they just simply dismissed him. No coat, no cup of soup for you, Paul. Like an eclipse, there is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can say to change our minds. Continuing in the scriptures. After they had gone a long time without food, <laughs> Paul stood up. What's he doing here, friends? He's exercising his authority. He's exercising his delegated influence, his privilege, his responsibility. He stood up. And he said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the Lord to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, look at these words, do not be afraid. Paul had to reach back into his luggage at that moment and go, look, fear is the fruit. It's the running mate of unbelief. In other words, the angel is saying, let's get the unbelief out of the way. Do not fear, Paul. I want to put you in remembrance of everything that Jesus taught you when he taught you in the Arabian desert. He says, do not fear. Be afraid, Paul, you must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you, so keep up your courage. I love that. I am not discouraged. 
I see things I don't like, but I don't stare at them too long. My mind drifts back to the truth of who I am in Christ. My mind drifts back to the truth. No weapon formed against me shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against me in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. I stand in that. Only the ship will be destroyed. He says, so keep up your courage, men. Paul said, keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just exactly as he told me it would happen. And then he says, nevertheless, nevertheless, all that sounded good, but there's more. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found out that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found out that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, look what he says, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. He said, for the last 14 days, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food, and haven't eaten anything. There are so many people right now, friends, they are in constant suspense. They're concerned. They're worried. Their minds have been hijacked. But here are the reassuring words of the Lord. Have something to eat. In other words, don't stop celebrating life. Carry on. Occupy till I come. Then he says, now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Practical. Pragmatic. Do you see the pragmatism here? Pragmatuomai is at work here, friends. He says you need it to survive. And then he says, not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Look at these words, cutting loose the anchors. Friends, there's such a spiritual principle here. Anchors are weights. They hold you in one place. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move. 
and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. I've got a few questions to quickly ask you in closing. How did the Apostle Paul know in advance about the false seduction? You say, what do you mean false seduction? The gentle breeze, the calm seas. When everybody else said, let's sail on, the Apostle Paul knew this is a false seduction. How did he know? There are people in political realms that promise one thing and deliver another. And that's exactly what happened that day. The calm seas, the gentle breeze promised one thing but delivered something different. How did the Apostle Paul know in advance about not only the false seduction but about the fierce storm? How would he have known that? I'm talking about the hurricane force wind called the Eurachlodon, the Northeaster. How would he know? Pragmatic, because it was the season for storms. It was the season. All the men of the ship were doing was gambling. They were basing their future upon what they saw that moment. Calm seas, gentle breeze. But the Apostle Paul knew it was the season for storms. It was not only that the Apostle Paul knew about the false seduction and the fierce storm, but he also knew about the fateful shipwreck. Because an angel of the Lord told him, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Only the ship will be lost. Friends, we are in a tempestuous storm for the freedom of America. I am pleading with my sovereign grace, brothers and sisters in Christ, don't be like the owner. Don't be like the captain. Don't be like the centurion of the ship. Don't allow a violent battering to come to us. Cast your vote for righteousness in this upcoming midterm election. Get involved in personal and public and political affairs and occupy, just like Jesus said, occupy until he comes. Cut loose your anchors of legalism and your running mate of ignorance and let them fall to the bottom of the sea. Throw your cargo and your tackle of the old covenant dependency over the bow of the ship. Cut the ropes of your lifeboats and put your trust in God alone. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense. It is the body of Christ's duty and responsibility and privilege and authority and delegated influence to fill political seats with spirit-filled believers. In doing so, we are extending, we are offering a coat to warm you with and a cup of soup to nourish you with and to get rid of your rags that you've been dressed with. 
and that we would dress you in the righteousness of Christ. Jesus declared that we are the salt of the earth. He said that you are the light of the world, but our lights must not be hidden under the bushel basket of legalism, the running mate of ignorance. Grace is the free gift of God. It does not demand our allegiance and it doesn't demand our vote. Our allegiance and our vote are our response, not our requirement. An apple is the fruit of a tree. Fear is the fruit of unbelief. Condemnation is the fruit of failure. Confusion is the fruit of mixing the old covenant with the new covenant. And legalism is the fruit of ignorance. Friends, it's time to go beyond how we feel. It's time to get beyond our emotions and realize that ignorance and stupidity are two different things. We have the mind of Christ. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. The ropes that once held the anchors and the lifeboats of religion have been severed and they have fallen into the sea. Our dependency is upon God alone. We are co-laborers with Christ and it's in Him that we live and we move and we have our being. We occupy until He comes. That means we carry on business. We manage public affairs and public business. We exact tribute, revenue, and debts. Doesn't this sound a little governmental? It sure does. And we especially involve ourselves in the everyday affairs, whether personal or private, whether public or political. Friends, November 8th, midterm election day is at hand. Will you please remember to cast your vote for righteousness? Forsake the mentality that God has selected the next senators, and that God has selected the next House of Representatives, that God has selected the next governors and politicians and other governmental officials. The Father is looking to us to exercise our privilege to put the righteousness of God in place so that this nation can continue to prosper. We are his body, we are his mouthpiece, we are his hands, we are his light, we are his salt, we are ambassadors of the earth. Whose report will you believe? Will you put your trust in John Calvin or will you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Come on, stay with me. Friends, the battering we have taken from the raging storms has an expiration date on it. It could be as soon as November 8th. The tackle and the cargo from the former regime have been thrown overboard. We have cut loose the anchors, the weights that so easily beset us, and we have arrived safely on the shore. Only the ship was lost, but the lives were saved. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I urge us to lay aside our doctrine and differences. May we unite together for the common cause of breaking the chains of legalism, the running mate of ignorance. Father, we thank you so much 
We thank you so much that those simple words that Jesus told would have an effect, a major effect, even in the age that we're living. Jesus said, occupy until I come. Jesus has given us all authority, all power, all privilege, all delegated influence. Jesus has put inside of us the light of the world. He has put inside of us the salt of the earth to preserve things and to make people thirsty for the righteousness of God in Christ. I thank you, Father, that you are doing some sort of work. We stand believing with you. We stand praying. We are co-laborers with Christ. We live and move and have our being in Him alone. So I thank you, Father, for what you are doing right now. I pray that this word, as practical as it is, would fall into the ears and fall into the hearts of people that have never considered voting, that they would rise up and they would assume. They would assume their responsibility. They would assume their duty. Father, I pray for a bigger revelation than just November 8th. November 8th in itself means nothing. It's another day. But I pray, Daddy, that that would be a time that the body of Christ would say, I've had enough of these stormy seas. I've had enough of this chaos. I have faced the fierce storm. I have faced the faithful shipwreck. And I am still standing. Father, may this word go viral and fall into the hearts of every man, woman, boy, and girl. And may they come to the conclusion that I need to do something with that word. That I do want to hear the words, well done. I don't want to be apathetic here. I don't want to be lethargic and just sit back and take it on the chin and watch my brothers and sisters deal with such chaos in this world. Father, I honor those 13 men and women that gave their lives unnecessarily for this country so that we could stand and we could put people in place in the political arena that would never allow that nonsense to ever happen again. Father, I'm so grateful for you. I'm so thankful for your love for us. I'm thankful, Father, that I really believe that your heart is in this. In Jesus' name, amen.